This is an ABC podcast. Like many stories of new friendships, this one started online. It was so fascinating watching people's comments. Every so often I get questions about bandicoots bringing ticks into people's yards, as if the bandicoot might be responsible for all tick-borne disease in Australia. Because people seem to have strong opinions. You can say that again. You know, the lady commented and said, do bandicoots bring ticks into yards? Ticks are one of those topics that brings out strong opinions and oodles of anecdotes. People just jump on saying that, like, they do or they don't, or I've seen it on Twitter elsewhere as well. People just, they just, they, they act like they know, basically, regardless of what they've seen or they just act like they, they know, you know? Welcome to Off Track, where we put experts on the radio so that you really know what you're talking about when it comes to nature. I'm Ann Jones, and our guest on Off Track today is Casey Taylor, who is just about to wrap up her PhD thesis at the University of Sydney. And the topic she has is a doozy, one that I get questioned about all the time, and that is who is bringing ticks into backyards, specifically in Sydney, where this topic is right on the tick of everyone's tongue. So let's head to northern Sydney with Casey so she can explain what she's been up to for the last three years. So the area that I work in is this really interesting matrix of bushland remnants, urban areas, you have backyards, and a lot of these yards back onto bushland and some people's, you know, their yards just become the bushland essentially. These bushland remnants have a lot of nice intact vegetation and there's also areas where they're dominated by weeds and things. There's a lot of native animals still hanging around in those areas, introduced animals as well, but it's this really nice mosaic of different habitat types. There are populations of native bandicoots and they can be found anywhere from Manly all the way to Palm Beach and they are known to go into people's gardens and they're surviving in the bushland remnants there which is really great you know super close to the city but they're doing reasonably well and it's really nice to see. So the bandicoot species that we've been studying is the long-nosed bandicoot and they have endangered populations but across the northern beaches we found them to be pretty common and at some areas we were catching them in quite high numbers so they seem to be doing okay and that might be because of fox baiting efforts and things like that. But what is the public perception do you think of these bandicoots in particular in relation to ticks? Um, It's quite variable So the perception is that bandicoots bring ticks into people's gardens and can expose them to ticks and the risk of being bitten by ticks. So that's the main concern that people have. And this concern has been, it's been in the community for what seems like quite a long time. And I think there's a few different reasons for that. A few decades ago, a study came out in Brisbane where they trapped hosts and they looked at tick abundance on hosts and they found that Bandicoots were carrying really high numbers of ticks, but this was in forest and farmland, not in urban areas. And so a lot of researchers have cited that paper over the years saying that bandicoots are an important host. And then it's also been perpetuated in the media and on websites. And in the general community, people have noticed, for example, following 
fox baiting, bandicoot numbers have boomed and they've noticed an increase in activity. And then they've also noticed an increase in tick numbers. And so they've associated those two things with one another. And then that's kind of carried on and created this perception that bandicoots cause tick problems. Those perceptions lead to human wildlife conflict. I have residents that have told me they've trapped bandicoots and moved them away from their yard. So we really needed to drill down into that ecology to figure out what's happening so that we can, one, alleviate those concerns, but also help protect bandicoots. Throughout my PhD, I've talked to lots of residents and Quite a few of them had told me about times where they would trap bandicoots in their yard to move them away. But in doing so, they potentially harm the bandicoots by moving them into a new territory. Bandicoots can be very territorial. So we have no idea what impact this has on the bandicoot survival when they get to their new area, if they make it there safely. So we don't want people to do things like that because we just don't know what kind of impact it has. And it's a really dangerous thing. But before we get to the results of Casey's studies, I have a string of basic, some might say stupid, questions, which actually yield fascinating answers. So, what is a tick? So, a tick is ectoparasites, but they are in the class arachnida with spiders, and they form a subclass with mites called acari. And most people, you know, they know to spot them because they are this weird-looking spider-like kind of thing and that they're really small and they do have this really hard shell. There are ticks that have a soft body, but the ones that we're talking about here definitely have a hard, hard shell. Are ticks native to Australia? Yes, they are. And in fact, we have a pretty high number of native ticks. All up, we have 74 species, but only 22 of those are known to bite people. Which are the ticks that create the public concern? So the biggest one on the east coast of Australia is the paralysis tick. It's called Ixodes holocyclus. And that's the one that bites people the most and causes things like paralysis and allergies. And that's something that we all want to avoid. But there needs to be a balance between control measures and actual risk. And to understand the whole situation, we need to understand the life that these Australian native ticks lead. And we're talking about the generalist feeding ticks here, the ones that might end up biting a human. Maybe. The female lays an egg and she can lay anywhere between 2,000 to 5,000 eggs in one go. And then those eggs will hatch and become larvae. And the larvae have six legs and then they basically disperse, not very far, and then they go on the hunt for a vertebrate host. They probably can't get very far because they are so small and often they probably are just on the leaf litter still. And so an animal would just walk over them or be foraging around unknowingly in this massive recently hatched larvae and the larvae will just crawl up onto the animal or up onto your boot and that's why you have some instances where people say oh I ran into what people call a tick bomb and they end up with thousands of larvae on them because they've just stepped on this area where a female has recently laid eggs that have then hatched oh my god I I have to say that after reading the papers you sent me yesterday, I had to have a shower. I was so itchy. Um, (laughs) 
So the larvae, they're about the size of a grain of sand. They're really, really small and a little bit translucent. They're round and they have six legs. And often people wouldn't even know that they have one crawling on them, but they're, they're just really, really small. And basically, if they're a generalist tick, like the paralysis tick, they will basically try and grab onto whatever they can. And then they will jump on, they'll take a blood meal, which can go for a few days. And once they have that blood meal, they will then just drop off the host. So during that time, they're basically sheltering somewhere, probably quite close to where they've dropped off. And they are molting into a nymph. So that's when they, you know, shed their exoskeleton and they become a nymph, which is bigger. The nymph is not as translucent. There's a lot of variations in colour and things. Sometimes they're more of a black colour and are probably about the size of a matchstick head. And do they look like what we would recognise as a tick at that stage? They do, yeah. They're just quite small, but they are recognisable. And a lot of people can usually tell that it's a tick at that point if it's bitten them and it's a nymph. So then they climb up a piece of grass or a shrub or something like that and wave their little arms around and hope that a you know wallaby or a rabbit or a human or someone who's got um, warm blood comes. Oh, no, not necessarily warm blood because they, they latch onto reptiles as well sometimes, don't they? Yes, they do. So basically, yeah, any vertebrate that walks past, they will grab onto. And that's the generalist ticks. There are some ticks that are a bit more host-specific and that's not really my... Um, I'm definitely focusing on the generalist ticks because they're the ones with human health impacts. But those generalists will just try and latch onto what they can because they need to conserve their energy. So they're not too picky. They'll just grab what they can. What an incredible life cycle. Right, so they grab on, have another feed, and then drop off and repeat the process, essentially getting bigger, growing out of their skin, breaking off the shell into their final adult form. Is that the the basic gist of it? Yeah, that's correct. And then it's the adult female that will take a blood meal from a host so that she can get the energy to do that egg laying. And then, you know, the cycle starts again. And over what time period roughly does that whole life cycle occur? Uh, it's, It's highly variable. So it could go over a year, but it really depends on the environment and the climate because ticks are susceptible to drying out. So what happens is in between those feedings, they may have to bunker down in the leaf litter for periods of time. The activity depends on the local microclimate at the ground level. So in a day, they might climb up some vegetation to do what we call questing, which is where they put their front legs out, waiting for a host. And then they will basically go up and down depending on the changes in the microclimate. And you know, that could span over months if the conditions aren't right. They may have to, it may take them a long time to have the right conditions to come out. Um, so it's really variable. So they almost stay in a, not a state of stasis necessarily, but they conserve their energy for when the yeah. conditions are just right. Exactly. Wow. It's funny, they have like three meals in their life. They do, yeah. That last drink that she has... It makes it quite dramatic, doesn't it? It's like the Last Supper. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is, for sure. So basically, in his adult form, he's all about shagging to the death. Yeah. Yeah, whereas yeah. she's she's got shagging, eating and having eggs. That's like her three missions. Yeah. <laughs> 
We've actually been really fortunate. Well, I don't know if anyone would call this fortunate. I do. But we've had instances where I'm collecting ticks off an animal and I get a male and female together. So the male has his mouth part in the female and they're attached to each other while the female has her mouthpiece in the animal. So it's, yeah, caught in the act or a act. <laughs> oh, this is fascinating already. All right. So, um, yeah. Um, you're listening to Off Track. I'm Ann Jones, and with me today is PhD candidate Casey Taylor, who has spent the last couple of years in bushland and backyards in northern Sydney, trying to figure out the puzzle of who is carrying ticks where. Interestingly, Australia seems to be pretty far behind in research into tick ecology in urban areas in particular. So there's been lots of work over the years in different parts of Australia looking at different types of ticks and host associations and some environmental traits. But in general, we're quite far behind the Northern Hemisphere where they have um, different types of diseases that have led to a lot of research effort into understanding tick ecology and to revealing the relationships between different hosts. So they have a really good understanding about what wildlife are required for each of those life stages and how changes in host communities can lead to increases or decreases in disease risk. And so we're kind of trying to kind of catch up in a way so that we can have that understanding because understanding more about tick ecology allows us to manage those risks better. And that requires gathering data. Here's how Casey did it. So to get the data on tick loads or tick abundance on the different hosts, we have to go out and trap them. So we go out in the afternoon, we put out different types of traps, so cage traps and Elliot traps, which are small metal enclosed traps that will capture things like little bush rats or antichinus. And we put those out, we put little yummy peanut butter oat ball baits in them, and then we'll leave them set and come back first thing sunrise the next morning and see what we've captured. And then we take those animals and we anaesthetise them lightly so that they're not stressed and that we can collect the ticks and count them and get that estimate of tick abundance on the animal. It's real. It's amazing to see them up close because with other kinds of trapping, you know, you, you want to be quick, you take the animal from the trap and you put it into a pillow slip, for example. You might take some measurements, record weight or a few other things, and then you let them go and you, you see them dart off at a million miles an hour. But in this case, we get to just see them up close and and just, it's amazing. Okay, what do bandicoots feel like? Um, tough fur, like it's quite thick. So they're not super soft as you might imagine. They're not as soft as a possum. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Sorry. Yeah, I'm trying twisted. to like imagine it in my head, like I'm patting a bandicoot in my head, trying to imagine what it feels like. <laughs> and what sort of animals, because it's not just bandicoots that you were trapping, what sort of animals did you actually encounter? We generally encountered black rats. So they're introduced rats and they're really common in urban areas and in urban bushland. We encountered brush-tail possums, ring-tail possums, brown antichinus, swamp rats. We got a couple of swamp rats, which is so exciting. And that's basically it. So not a huge amount of diversity because, of course, these are quite urban remnants. Some of them are highly disturbed, but still quite a few different types. 
Did all of the types of animals have ticks? Did every animal have a tick? Almost. So almost all of the animals that we captured had ticks, like 90% of them say had ticks. And this is kind of standard in most populations. Most animals will be carrying uh, low numbers of ticks. So even the, the little antichinus, they, most of them had ticks on them. And what we're really looking at is differences in abundances because most of them have low tick burdens, but then you can find animals in the population that have really high tick burdens, unusually high burdens. What was the ratio, I suppose, of animals that you found? We trapped more black rats than anything else. And then the next sort of most common animal was bandicoots. And then we caught fewer numbers of animals like possums and antichinus and other and native rats like bush rats and swamp rats. Some of those animals, in particular antichinus, bush rats and swamp rats, appeared to be only at particular locations. So there was only one or two sites that they were known to be present and were there, and they were never trapped in backyards, whereas bandicoots, possums and rats did go into yards. But Overall, we caught more black rats than anything else and then bandicoots were the next most common animal. Is it a reasonable assumption then taking from on from that that they're the two sort of, I suppose, most common tick hosts that are in the backyards in this area of Sydney? Yeah, I would say that they are the only thing that could be also playing a role that we might not have captured as well is that, you know, possums tend to not spend as much time on the ground they may not have gone into the trap so we may have a little bit of an underestimate of possum abundance there but we tend not to find as many ticks on possums that's what we found with the possums that we were able to sample from so in terms of their abundance and the amount of ticks they carry it definitely seems that black rats bandicoots and and introduced rabbits are some of the more important ones so there were by numbers, more black rats than bandicoots. But what did you find in terms of how many ticks those species were carrying? Black rats, they on average carry fewer ticks than bandicoots, but because they're so much more abundant, they're maintaining tick populations in a lot of areas because there's just more of them. So at some sites, black rats were 30% to 100% more abundant. At some sites, there just weren't any bandicoots. So black rats were really driving, they're really maintaining tick populations in that area. Through camera trapping, we also found that black rats visited more yards than other animals. They were more active on camera. So they're definitely in close proximity to people in the sense that while they might not be in the house, they're still in the yard and the more time an animal spends in the yard, the more likely they are to have a tick drop off that can then molt and bite a person for example. Yeah, that's not going to be welcome news to people, right? Because I think (laughs) no one really likes to admit that they have black rats around their house, do they? No, not at all. Like none of us do. No. (laughs) But we all have black rats around our house. (laughs) Exactly. No, no one wants, no one likes to know that. But that's the, it's one of the important things to know is that What's happening in the bush at night when people are sleeping is that there's lots of other things happening, you know, and this is why bandicoots sometimes are targeted when they probably shouldn't be is because black rats are there and they're just, they're cryptic, you know. People don't know that they're there even though they are. So the, the argument sort of is that say one bandicoot might have 10 ticks on it and rats might only have two each, but because there's 40 rats, 
you've got an abundance of ticks because the, the there's more hosts yes, with yep. less ticks on each <laughs> host, but therefore more ticks. Yeah. And in some instances, you had rats with really high numbers. We had rats with like 17 nymphs on them. Oof. And so you did have instances where they had heaps of ticks. And same with rabbits. Rabbits, we've looked at the role of rabbits and some introduced rabbits that we were looking at had like 300 larvae on them. Wow. So they can have lots of ticks as well. We just don't have as, um, we don't have a good understanding about the density and activity of the rabbits because the techniques we were using aren't really suitable for rabbits. So that was kind of a separate study, but we still found that in in uh, North Sydney, rabbits are capable of carrying high tick loads. And so you can then kind of, that suggests that in areas where rabbits are, are reaching high densities or they're more abundant than other native animals, they could definitely be maintaining tick populations. It's so fascinating how in some ways, in some pe- for some people, the bandicoots have been demonised as the problem. Yeah. Whereas actually that isn't necessarily the case. No. And in fact, I, I think it was one of the, the phrases that you wrote was that black rats are fulfilling a niche for our native ticks. Yeah, that's definitely something that we think is happening. So in a lot of bushland remnants around Sydney, rats have kind of replaced native animals that were there before, except with a few exceptions where you have bandicoots still present and possums and things. But a lot of native animals, you know, bush rats, for example, aren't there anymore. So we we think that they're filling this role in just being a small mammal host for these Australian ticks because at the end of the day, the ticks they're carrying are all native ticks and they seem to be getting along just fine. So, this remnant population of bandicoots in Sydney may have been unfairly persecuted because of this assumption that they were super hosts of ticks. It's not the first time that the wrong animal has been persecuted as being a carrier of ticks, as this now infamous story from North America shows. They initially targeted larger mammals like deer. They thought, okay, deer are the primary host of this particular tick. In this case, it's called black-legged tick. And they thought, okay, deer are important, so we want to be able to control ticks by targeting deer. So they actually use lethal control to knock down deer populations in the hope of controlling ticks. But it didn't have a lot of success. It was highly variable. It led them to find out that actually the small mammals are really important and they were kind of focusing on the wrong animal in a way or they weren't focusing on the the whole picture. So that led them to develop strategies that focused on those small mammals, for example, using bait boxes. So they've developed these bait boxes that essentially attract small mammals and they go in there to nibble on a bit of bait and it delivers a tiny amount of tick repellent to those animals and then kills the ticks that are on them at the time. So these were created to really target the white-footed mouse because this species carry lots of larvae. So they thought, okay, well, if we put these bait boxes out, the mice will go in there, it will kill the larvae that's on them and then hopefully reduce the disease risks. So that means there'll be less nymphs in the next season. So that's a technique that we would hope to be able to look into in Australia, but we just, we don't know enough about what hosts are supporting those different life stages. I think I want people to know that tick ecology is really complex and that 
there's a suite of animals playing a role so that for any bandicoot that they see or even any rat, there's a good chance that those animals aren't even carrying many ticks at all. You know, they're probably not one of these super spreaders. They're just going about their business and they might have a couple of ticks on them. And in that sense, there's no cause for alarm. And so there's often so many more factors involved. Ain't that the truth? I'm guilty of jumping to conclusions about the environment around me too. And this one, this is a magnificent example of cool your jets. Casey Taylor is writing up her PhD presently at the University of Sydney. And I'm Anne Jones. This is Off Track, where we try and explain a little bit about the natural world around us every single week. And we'll be back at the same time in the next episode, ready to take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.